0: For logbook servicing, you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888.
1: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan, and welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Dave, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, in this episode, you're going to meet someone who uh, has had a, uh, a rather uh, unfortunate uh, start in life, uh, but is living proof that uh, where you start is not uh, necessarily where you have to end up. Someone who has uh, been through her fair share of trauma, but has uh, somehow uh, turned that pain into power. Hers is a truly inspiring story. She's the founder and patron of Breast Cancer Care WA uh, and many, many other uh, charities and philanthropic pursuits, which I'll get to in time before we say hello to Dr. Roz Worthington, OAM. Hello, Roz, Hello, Tim. Look, it's probably uh, a bit uncomfortable for you to always hear that. Um, In in any intro to you, people always reflect on uh, what was a pretty... Difficult start to life for you, but uh, look, uh, this is one of those shows where yes. we uh, where we look uh, at uh, at where people have come from Watson and how and they've how they've come <laughs> to be where they are today. So, um, Roz, your childhood it uh, it wasn't the happiest of times.
2: Well, uh, no, I guess looking back, I mean, at the time you're in that situation, you just you know you deal with it. But so I was very young, about three, and my brother eighteen months old when we were really abducted by my dad's side of the family and um, we were born in Collie in the southwest and mm-hmm. then we went taken to Geraldton uh, and then we went into um, an orphanage and then from there we went into foster care.
1: This is all in, in Geraldton? This is all
2: in Geraldton and into foster care um, east of Cha- east of Geraldton in Chapman Valley. Right. Yeah, so I was there until... I was 12 and had to go into Geraldton to go to high school and and to live with my grandmother. Um, So, look, I I like to reflect on, let's say, there were lots of good times as well, but, um, yeah, abuse and um, everything that goes with it, and particularly when you are a foster child, and this is in the very early 50s, Mm. so it was very, um, very prevalent and I guess, it, and it is today too, um, I guess, but though today people can talk about it. And all those years ago, as a little girl in foster care, being told, well, you know, you can't tell anybody because you'll get sent away again. Well, that was the worst thing that you could say to me because I didn't want to be sent away, you know, from my foster um, nana, so to speak. Yeah. So you endure, but you don't realise. So I guess it's just where, I guess that's where the beginning of all my resilience started.
1: It's such a cruel way to build that resilience though, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, there's a lot of people worse off than me, Tim. When I hear some stories, I don't think my story is anywhere near Mm. as bad as what I hear from other people. And then, you know, yeah, I've seen and heard a lot over the years. So so I I guess I'm pretty blessed. That's the way I look Mm. at it. And the things that happened to me, I think have made me a better person, definitely more compassionate and more empathy towards um, every human being that I meet.
1: Those early years in in Geraldton, then I mean, do you even remember Collie? Were you too young?
2: I do to, remember, to remember that. I do remember. I have fleeting memories of Collie, um, but then I never saw my mum until I was fourteen and reunited with my mother and um, mum's side of the family.
1: And how was that?
2: It well, it was. It's been. It was amazing. I mean, slowly um, we built a relationship. Um, but I went to New Zealand to live, married my first husband at twenty. And so um, I didn't really have a lot to do with her, but she came over for a holiday, first time she'd ever left Western Australia. And that was huge. And that was the first time that we we actually really talked because she was a very introvert lady. But when you think of what she went through all of her years, you know, she was the, I think there were 11 or 12 in her family and she left school at 13, you know, to look after the, the siblings that were coming along and and she had a really tough life and she mm. she had um breast cancer at 34 and her relationships weren't that great either and then she went on to have five other children and so but in those days she was trying to find us and to get us back but she didn't know where we were for for so long you know
1: how did she not know if well, given that you're with uh, with with a foster family but
2: she didn't know She didn't know that we'd – see, we were abducted while she was in hospital. Right. So she didn't know who had taken us. They had an idea because the people we were staying with had actually said that such and such and and my uncle had come to visit me, but then they never came back with us. Mm. So – and then mum tried – she said she would catch the bus up to Perth every week, you know, come to the child welfare and ask them to find us and they were never interested.
1: And at what point did you raise any complaints at all or talk to anyone about uh, about the abuse that you endured?
2: Gosh, I never spoke about it to anybody. It was after re- I was married. Do you regret married. that now? I, do I regret it? Yeah. Um, well, no, because it's. I don't think so, Tim. It was just who I was and how I coped, and I just never spoke about it. Um. Was there any shame or guilt attached to it? I think when you're young, there can be because – you sort of think when you were young, was it my fault? You know, was I too friendly as a child? So you do sort of have those feelings and and I just let it go. But it wasn't until after I was married Mm. that my husband and I had a conversation and I told him and I remember how shocked he was. Mm. So um, looking back, should I have gone and have counselling um, I don't know. I've, I think I've done pretty well since. I sort of think, well, you know, You've sometimes it's okay, too much counselling, mate. You just get on with it.
1: <laughs> you, you probably counselled yourself.
2: I did actually. I would reflect, and I still today take that time out mm. for reflection at the end yeah. of every day and talk to myself and and um, you know organize in my brain what I've got to do the next day and then have a great night's sleep. So, yeah.
1: So you met your mum again at 14. Mm -hmm. Uh, What happened then as far as your your living arrangements went?
2: Well, I was living with my grandmother in Geraldton and she took me down. Um, I think she was feeling bad that she was the one that had instigated us being taken away. So I was 14 and she took me to Collie. I was going to be a bridesmaid for my auntie. And that was the first time I'd really met all my family. Wow! And so we did that and, and then back to Geraldton and... And then um, my grandmother said that I had to get out and work, so I was almost 14. I was 14 then, so I had to leave school and get a job. And it wasn't – I went and did a couple of visits to Collie with my mum, and that was lovely, but we never really, really, really connected until she came to New Zealand when I was a mother myself. Right. You know, and put myself in her shoes. And um, we talked about it then in depth, and, and she never got over it till the day she died. That really, really affected her. Mm. Well, can you imagine today if that happened, that you're there with your two children and then, then your two children aren't there? It'd be a national, it'd be, you know, it'd be everywhere, wouldn't it'd it? Be,
1: it'd be huge news. It'd
2: be huge news. Huge news. In those days, they just covered it up and no mm. one took any notice.
1: It's, it's very sad, isn't it? Mm. You wonder how often it actually happened.
2: It happened a lot. I'm sure. I mean, many I'm members sure. in my family suffered abuse as mm. well, so,
1: you know. So your teenage years were really the start of your working life.
2: They were. And what could I do? I had no qualifications. I wasn't that great academically. And what really pushed me over the edge, my grandmother saying leave, but just before that, the um, teacher in the in one of the classes for maths, um, I only got a few percent. And um, he said, this is what dumb is, boys and girls. And so that sort of, you know, I didn't really have a love to want to stay at school after that. So... Um, Yeah, I couldn't do anything, but I did become the best waitress in the best hotel in (laughs) Belgium until I went overseas to New Zealand on a working holiday.
1: Now, obviously, you you mentioned your mum uh, being diagnosed with with breast cancer. At what age were you also uh, facing that same challenge? So
2: mum was 34, and my problems with my chronic breast disease started when I was 16, and so then it carried on with just having breast lumps removed every other year, till about, I'd had about 12 breast lumps removed. And then at 34, believe it or not, I had a a mastectomy and a reconstruction. So mine was never diagnosed malignant, but it was, um, you know, it was a disease that, that if I hadn't had it, you know, if I hadn't have had the mastectomy, then it would have, um, it would have reared its ugly head in time. So it's just something that, yeah, five or six people in my family at the moment, my cousin number six about, Five weeks ago, was diagnosed. So, wow. aunties and sister, and so it's pretty prevalent in the family. Mm. And, and, and
1: no doubt, the thing that set you on your path to to working with breast cancer and yeah. people affected by it uh, later in life, which we'll uh, we'll get to uh, in a moment. But mm-hmm. uh, at what point did you then move down to the big smoke?
2: Well, um, I actually left Geraldton yep. and went to New Zealand. Yep. And I lived in New Zealand for twelve years. Uh, my first husband, and then we came back to Perth, and that's when um, I settled in Perth. So the boys were about, I think they were about 10 and 8 when we left New Zealand. You're going to ask me how many years ago that was? <laughs> many, many years ago, Tim.
1: You just mentioned maths wasn't your finest moment, <laughs> Ros, so we won't go there. Well, back. the boys
2: are 45 and 43 now, so there you go. <laughs> so we came back to Perth, yes, and my dad was very ill with mental illness. That's a
1: long way from, from Geraldton to New Zealand, isn't it? Yeah. A big adventure.
2: Well, it was a huge adventure because I was the first person in my family to to do this. It yeah. was just amazing. that I was going to go overseas. And, yeah a bunch of girlfriends and I, and, and that's what we did. Met my first husband the first week and engaged the second. And
1: <laughs> So you went there and met a Kiwi? I went there. I met a Kiwi. Crossed the ditch. Yeah,
2: crossed the ditch. All I said was, he said, say Sydney. So <laughs> I said Sydney, and um, that was it. So yeah, we were yeah yeah married, and he came back to Perth, and we lived over here.
1: Fantastic. Mm. We'll get into that uh, just after the break. Ros Worthington is my special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories
0: right here on 882 6PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family owned funeral directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to
1: Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. Roz Worthington uh, is my special guest. Just before that break, Roz, uh, you mentioned you uh, you took off to New Zealand. You're, you met your your husband, and then yes. who would become your husband? What then brought you back to birth?
2: Well, we had lived there twelve years. And I love New Zealand, but my dad was very ill and he suffered mental illness. And so, um, I just felt that it was time for me to come home and, and try and help him and take care of him. So, mm. um, that's what we did. We, we came back to Perth and, and my husband got a job in security and, and I, um, did as much as I could, you know, helping my father. It, um,
1: by this point, you were a, a mum?
2: By this point, I was a mum of a ten-year-old and an eight-year-old, and and um, got them into school over here and got them settled. And uh, yeah, we've never really looked back, or the boys have never looked back, and I've mm. never looked back either. Although the days in New Zealand were beautiful, mm. but um, I was glad to be home. I'm very close to my family, so it was. you know, I was glad to be home.
1: That uh, that that first marriage uh, unfortunately dissolved. Yes, it um, did. But uh, I suppose what followed. Uh, you know, we've talked about some of the traumatic uh, episodes in your life to that point, but uh, your second marriage was something of a fairy tale, my, really.
2: Yes. Um, a fairy tale that became tainted with a lot of sadness mm. and sorrow, but uh, he was my soulmate, my best friend, and he was my first boyfriend when we were
1: 11. 11 years 11 old. 11 years in old. In Geraldton.
2: Yes. And I can remember him kissing me on the cheek once, and it was just like, wow, and so he was my boyfriend till I think I was about thirteen, and I wrote him a dear John letter and said that we couldn't go out anymore <laughs> yeah. because you know we would. He was in Una out of Gerald East of Geraldton, and I was in Geraldton, and so I never we never met again until I think I was um, my husband and I had separated, and I met Ross about two or three years after that. I was on my own with the boys, and um, it was like instant. Mm. It was just instant, and, and um, yeah.
1: And what had he been doing up? To that point,
2: he was from, a carpenter. Apart
1: from longing for you,
2: <laughs> he was a carpenter, and um, he was he used to travel Australia a lot. Yeah, um, and he was on his own, and he used to travel Australia a lot with his two sons, and pretty much a pretty much a nomad existence, I think. But he did a lot of work on the missions and did a lot with the Aboriginal people. So it was, for, and he lived in Wickham when he came back into my life. So it was a big thing, a big transition for him and and the boys to move down to Perth. Um, you know, he did that because he wanted, you know, to be with me. So it it was a big sacrifice, I think, for him, looking back because he was never a city person, but he'd do lots of camping trips and and do lots of fishing trips and and that sort of thing. But yeah, so we had fifteen years together. We got married about a year after um that we that you know, that he came back into my life. Yep. And um but, you know, he did have mental health. He had a lot of mental health issues and um, alcoholism. So it was very difficult for him. I guess very difficult for all of us. But um, you, you never, ever realise that anything is going to happen to you um, like it did with us, as it does every four hours with so many families in Australia, mm. that your loved one is going to take their life. And he did. And... um his emotional pain, as I say to everybody, because so many people have got something to say about someone who takes their life. Oh, what have they, why would they do that? They've got a beautiful family and a beautiful home and it's the ignorance of people sometimes that really get me because people, it's nothing to do with the beautiful home and the, and the lots of money and the cars. It's a mental illness mm. and that emotional pain for so many people gets so great that that's the only way they see out, which is really, really sad. And that's why I talk so much and do so much with Lifeline WA because I talk about the lived experience. You need to hear it from someone who's lost someone. Mm. We don't want you to walk in our shoes. And so that's very important work for me.
1: I think it's fair to say we are more open and willing to talk about mental health and suicide and depression these days. But unfortunately, the stats on... Depression and suicide don't seem to be improving a great deal. Where are we going wrong?
2: Oh, Tim, you know, if I really knew the answer to that, I, I wouldn't probably be sitting here, mate. I'd be on some Greek island. <laughs> but, but no, um, it, it's a serious, it's a serious topic.
1: Are we not talking all... about it in the right way, or are we not treating people? Well, in the I right think way? the stigma.
2: See, sixteen years ago, when Ross died, and about a year after that, I took up the cause and became a voice for a lot of people that were voiceless. Yep. And because I believed that the stigma attached to suicide and depression was so great, and that's what I've tried to be creating, that awareness um, over these past 15 years with of with the work I do with Lifeline WA. But every four hours, or even a bit less now, people are still taking their own life. I was with a mum a few weeks ago that lost her 13-year-old son to suicide. Now, you can't even begin to... Contemplate and put that together, how that could happen. But it happened. So our young people are incredibly vulnerable and you have amazing organisations out there. Mm. I'm not knocking all these organisations, but I do wonder why the statistics are not dropping. The work that I do in the community, I work with children, I work with youth, I work with anyone really that wants to listen that might be going through some suffering you 've really got to start with the heart, you know we have our wonderful corporates that give money. We have the government, or might I add they're the state government that give very little to lifeline w a so I just thought I might drop that in, okay drop it Go very, up. very little um but that is me speaking, and that's my personal, and it's not um, the views of anyone else in these organisations. So, mm. But I just want to make that known because so many people think Lifeline has just got so much money, and mm. we're desperate every week. Mm. I mean, I know I'm digressing here, but 80 last year telephone counsellors, and now we're up to 150-odd, and,
1: and are those phones just constantly, constantly
2: ringing? Constantly, yes. Twenty four hours a day, yeah. And we we so it's we're all about training crisis for counselors so they can sit because everybody needs someone to listen to. Mm. Um, you need to be able to listen, but it just even goes deeper than that. You've got to have the empathy, and a lot of gra- I work with the grassroots people. You know, I'm so looking forward to going up to Onslow to um, on International Women's Day. You know, to speak to people on up up there. Um, And of course, this subject would come up as well with mental health because Mm. we know with FIFO, uh, but it's just everywhere. And um, it's just, yeah, I believe my work that I do is more on a humanitarian level, if you know what I mean?
1: Well, certainly, if you're talking about the lived experience, mm. you've, uh, you're almost overqualified for, <laughs> yes, for that role. Unfortunately, so qualifications yes. you probably don't really wish to have. No
2: one wishes them, Tim, but they happen every day. And right as we're speaking, it'll be happening to another family.
1: Have you found over the years during your association with Lifeline WA that uh, um, the reasons that people talk about over the phone for their predicament have they changed at all, or is it the the same sorts. Look,
2: of I think it's all pretty same, same. Although social media plays yep. a big role in it yep. now. A lot of our young people, it's set off with social media. So, you know, I, I just honestly, it would be wonderful if we never had social media again. But then, in saying that, it has its place as well. Mm. I realise that. But um, so, yes, it has changed a little bit. And the the um, but that they always comes back to the same sort of conclusion. People that take their life, we don't want to be a burden. Mm. So we don't want to be a burden to you, mum and dad, or to the family, but they don't realise that it's a bigger burden when you leave, mm. you know. So um, a lot of work to be done, a lot of good people doing work, but, um, yeah, well, I'm throwing my towel in the ring now and I want to do it my way with a lot of people because I think heart work is where you start.
1: Yeah. And good luck to the person who stands in your way, Ros. Yes, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be me, I tell you. <laughs> But look, we'll get on to some of those uh, more positive outcomes uh, after the break, Ros. We're going to have to go to a break now. But uh, yeah, look, you are absolutely someone who has turned your own experiences uh, into into something good. And uh, we're going to celebrate those in just a moment. This is uh, Ros Worthington, OAM, our special guest in this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories right here on 882 6PR.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888.
1: Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Ros Worthington. Uh, Ros... (laughs) I don't even know where to start, really, with your charity work. There's been so much of it uh, over the years. Uh, but when did you first decide? Look, I'm I need to do something positive with what I've experienced. I'm going to invest my energies now in charity work. Was there a moment when you just you made that switch?
2: Well, not really, Tim, because I'd always been that way from a child. It was always wanting to to help someone that was perhaps disadvantaged and. So it started very young.
1: Um, I, know, I was just, where yes. did that come from? Because, you know, you didn't really see your mum for a long no. time during your childhood. Your father's side virtually yep. abducted you. Yeah. You grew up in foster care. Yeah. You had some shocking episodes of abuse during that. <laughs> Where did that come from?
2: Well, I well honestly,
1: I think. <laughs> did I think you, did I, you have a guardian angel in your life? I think or something? I've been
2: blessed, and I think without saying too, without being too corny, but I am pretty eccentric, so that's okay, you know. And at my age, I can be, <laughs> so um, I can I can say and do what I want. I think at this age, after thirty five years, virtually in charity work, yeah. um, I think, and, and then working in the school with the boys you know starting with the pnf yep. doing okay. the fate and and then um seeing an ad in the paper where they wanted someone to help establish make a wish foundation here in western australia so that was in about 1986 and that's when that really started yep. my full on charity work so it was make a wish foundation for yep. for about 12 or 13 years and then i tend i tend to be a Catalyst, not a catalyst for Make-A-Wish because they were already involved, but the other um, things that I've been involved in in charities, it's like being a catalyst for change. So you want this to happen and then you do five or six or seven years and then you have to step back. Which is the hardest for a lot of people say, to I'd, do. I was going to say, I'd
1: imagine you'd struggle with that, Ross. Yeah, no, no, unless you've got something else to take its place.
2: Well, there's always something else, but I still, and I believe very firmly that it's never been about me, Tim. Yep. And there's people out there that think, oh, look at it, it's all about. It's not about me. I've never started or done anything that's been for my. It's been for the people. And it's been for those that are disadvantaged or those that are in pain. Now, that all of those feelings and that has to have accumulated over the years and come from my life experiences. So I've never been in any of this. I've certainly never been in it to make any money. I can tell you that because <laughs> most of my life and all of this work has been voluntary.
1: How did you, how did you live through those oh, for goodness how, do you, how do you pay the rent?
2: Ask my family. Put the lights on? I lived with family and, and friends for the last five years because I was almost homeless and it was, you know, it was my family that supported mm. me and my sons who would get a bit grumpy with me, especially the one that's a lawyer and the one that's a businessman, you know, mum, for God's sake, what are you doing? But they were always there to support me and love me. And and it's only been in the last four months that I've actually come out of all of that. And, um, you know, I guess standing on my own two feet now at 66 and um, and loving life. So, you manage, so you, and I very much believe a, in the universe. No, a, it's the a universe. Time of financial
1: independence. <laughs> yes, yeah, good for you. I'm
2: reaching. I've reached that. I, I've still got a lot of work to do, but I'm getting there. <laughs> so um, I'm very happy with myself because it's all about taking care of yourself as well. So it's very much about self care. Mm. And so I've been blessed with the family and friends that surround me. I, I've absolutely, incredibly blessed, and of course, working with the universe. Yes. My guardian angels are always there to support me. So, um, you know, I think I'm pretty lucky.
1: Well, thank God the universe uh, did steer you down this road because, uh, yeah. look, I know you glossed over them, but I just want to just <laughs> go through almost in some sort of chronological yep. order here. Make-A-Wish, which is a a charity that's oh. familiar to so many people. I mean, it's such a beautiful concept. Mm. Um Beautiful,
2: beautiful it, organization. It must have
1: been a, a rewarding time for you.
2: It was beautiful, and and children keep you humble, and they taught me so much. And, yep. and I went on to be very blessed to be the chairman for Make yep. a Wish Australia, and then international board where I got to meet, you know, forty other countries involved mm. and, and we were all there with the same purpose. We yep. all wanted to help children with life threatening illnesses.
1: So you step back from that, yes. After some time? Yes. And then move on to?
2: Moved on to um, um, starting up Breast Cancer Care WA, and that's now been 16 years, 17 years, um, and 1,500 women a year in WA diagnosed with breast cancer. And I can say that we help almost 1,500 women and their families a year with that service. I am incredibly proud of Breast Cancer Care WA because... Um, there again, that's another organisation. Not one cent of government funding
1: have they received. Oh, stick the knives in, Ros. Well,
2: well, well, I think it's because then they say, oh, well, there's Ros. That's okay. She'll go out there and help raise a lot you're of almost, money. So, you're a victim of your own success. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think so. But, but I don't give up trying. So we will continue. But... Um, you know, we set up iconic events, the long table lunch, yep. the purple boots, the purple bras that I've been responsible for setting all those up and they've carried those on over the years and they're very important fundraisers. But I've always gone back to the grassroots in the community. Mm. The community don't let me down. Mm. That's why I probably have never wor- really worked with People government.
1: People can't say no to you.
2: Well, I don't know. Others say that they're scared of me or they run <laughs> when they see me. But no, that's not true. But, um, it's it's very much with Breast Cancer Care yeah. WA and every service that we give is free. Yeah. Not one woman or husband has to pay for a service when they for come. For
1: those who who don't know, what services do you offer? So
2: we provide practical, emotional and financial support. So practical support might be going and helping do your washing or clean your house. It might be a young mum helping her with the children. And then you've got your financial support, which is uh, the very first one I ever did all those years ago, was um, fill a fridge with food for a young mum who'd been made redundant and get some presents for her seven-year-old daughter because she couldn't afford Christmas. So we do a lot of that behind the scenes. We might pay for electricity treatment, help (laughs) you. electricity or your treatment um and um, there's many financial so situations all of those
1: things that yeah. you yeah. don't
2: get and emotional the, you know we've got our breast care so. nurses we've got our counselors yeah that I can tell you counsel a lot more than just someone with breast mm. cancer these days they take mm. the whole family so they do amazing work there's 22 staff there now I believe. And it's absolutely amazing the work they do. They put their heart and soul into it. It's a beautiful organisation and I just implore anyone out Mm. there, you know, money raised here stays here in WA. It doesn't go anywhere else. Mm. It stays here, you know, and and it goes to the grassroots. It goes to people in our isolated communities. Wherever people need help, we're there. We've never said no to anybody.
1: Mm. Um, Of course, you've got Lifeline WA in the mix there too. Yes. Um, When did you start your association with them?
2: Well, really, it was after Ross took his life. So that was um, 16 years ago. So about 15 years ago that I became involved with Lifeline. I was going to start my own charity. But I'm one of these people that if you can't collaborate, you know, I don't really – not into starting new charities. There's about Mm -hmm. 9,500 already. And I'm very big on collaboration, getting people to work together. And there are so many charities that could work together that probably don't work together. Uh, because into the mix there comes if you've started a charity for some reason a lot of people think well i've got ownership of this this is my charity Mm. no 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 it's not your charity you know it's like breast cancer it's not my charity i might have started it but it's not mine to run so with lifeline um yeah that work's been full on and Mm. um you know, oh, I've done stuff ending. with Wesley Mission and stuff with Angley Care. I mean, yep. but Lifeline WA is the one that you know that I'm an ambassador for, and I yep. really love the work they do. Mm.
1: Just, just on that, uh, the, the number of charities are you finding it harder to make some noise and uh, attract donors and support from the community, given how crowded the charity space is now? I mean, you think of all the various days there are throughout the year, the different colour ribbons, or, yes. or whatever other little. Mm. Uh, symbols that go with all very worthwhile causes. Has it made your job harder?
2: Um, I think it does make it more difficult. The last couple of years have been difficult for the charities, particularly with Breast Cancer Care WA and and, and with Lifeline WA because they're two that I work closely with. Um, And so, yes, um, it has been difficult. Mm. I think it's starting to turn now. So... You've always just got to go with the flow. And of course, people that are reliant on government um, grants, when it gets bad or the government grant's taken away, they're the charities then that are crashing. Yeah. You know, so it's important to work together. It's important to collaborate. See all working together, you can help so many more people. But yes, it is difficult for charities and you've got to keep thinking. That's why I was the purple boots and the purple bras and you've got to think outside the Something box.
1: Something crazy. You've got that's to be a like bit
2: crazy. It used to be a little bit this. eccentric sometimes. Yes, it does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, look, we're going to have to go to another break, but on the other side I want to talk to you about your, your latest uh, project, the Love yes. Angel project, because yes. I know that's one you're very passionate about uh, at the moment. So we'll get into that uh, right after the break. More with Ros Worthington, my special guest, on this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories, right here on 882 6PR.
0: You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family owned funeral directors. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's family owned funeral directors. And welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories, uh,
1: the inspiring story in this edition of Ros Worthington. Ros, uh, you've won quite a few awards, medals, uh, yes. that sort of thing over the time. I'd look, frankly, we'd fill up the whole hour if I went through them all, but uh, I mean, you've got one in your name now. You've got, uh, well, you've got two really in your name, haven't you? Dr. Ros Worthington OAM. That's right, yes. Uh, an honorary doctorate. Yes. And an uh, Order of Australia in there, just to name a couple. Yes. Are they important to you? Look,
2: they're wonderful accolades. I don't do any of this. It's actually embarrassing. But I think out of all the awards, the one that I'm the most proud of is um, West Australian of the Year for Community in mm. 2015, because yep. that's about the community of WA. So, yes, I do get a bit embarrassed. But look, you know, you've got to go with the flow.
1: <laughs> Just take it. <laughs> Just take it as it comes, yes. The inaugural uh, Women's Hall of Fame. Yes. Does that, that must... Stand up. That's a lovely
2: one, yes. And and that's why I've got great pleasure in going up on International Women's Day, working with, um, you know, up at Wheatstone and Chevron, and and, um, yeah, that's a great day. It's also the day that my youngest son was born, so. You know, mm. I did my bit on International Woman's Day forty-three sure years ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and you're still doing your bit. Yes, uh, Love Angel Projects. Yes, <clears throat> uh, is your latest creation. What's that about?
2: Well, it, it's not so late. It's been about ten or twelve years when I started that. Um, but that is philanthropy and teaching children the power of paying it forward with kindness. And I work. I work in about ten schools. So I'm very, very lucky um with the schools that are happy to work with me with my little programs and look it just started with me meeting a lady called Mabuba from Afghanistan when I was in Sydney years ago and I went and met with her and she was a refugee and she had a she had a um orphanage called Hope House in Kabul and when she told me some of the horrendous stories I came home and I sat with my grandchildren around the table there was about I had about 4 then and they were like two and four and five and six, and I remember saying that we have to help the little children in the world, and how can we help? You know, so I said, "What you know, angels help everybody, and they fly all around the world. So Mm. the love angels were born, and my, my granddaughter, Jazz, drew the love angel logo that we still have today, and basically, it's very, very much, again, grassroots, but... Taking little children, even from kindy age, and I love working in the primary school and now I'm going up to year seven and eight with some of my little programmes, but they're just it's heart work and it's just teaching children that to be kind is good. And it also helps it, with the teasing Which and sounds that, so simple. And it is simple. You know, kindness is underplayed or that word kindness, it's huge, but so many people don't, you know, use that word very often. But you know, And it's sad when you meet a child that doesn't know what kind means because they've never had it shown to them in the home. So that's always heartbreaking. But just working with the children, teaching them and making them do the work. Like one of our little programs is the school kindness lunch. Mm. So you go into the school and the year sixes and we get them all together and they get a business plan and they write and ask for, um, for goods from one of the stores and They bring it together and they make 100 lunches if I request 100 lunches and they make them themselves and then they go to a school that I give them because there's about 40 schools in Perth that children don't get breakfast or lunch and so then the principal or the teacher with two of the children go out and very humbly and quietly give the lunches to the principal or the chaplain and and then that's lunch for those children that don't have it. So we have a few schools doing that and they absolutely Mm. love it because they're doing the work you know, they're making the lunches and they're doing little affirmation cards and just just doing the kindy kids' colour in the little brown paper bags. And so it's just everyone working together. Mm. And um, yeah, so that's very, that's my heart work. I just love because the children are our future. And look, honestly, mate, when you get to my age, why am I going to be too invested in sort of, you know, people are very focused and black and white. And I, I really love working with the little people. Mm. So the big people I work with, of course, but but it's the little people that I love mm. because they're like sponges.
1: And, and hopefully if you reach the uh, the little ones, there's a, a lesson for their yeah. mums and dads as well.
2: Well, I think because parents need to, you know, uh, see, so you don't get given a book on how to be a parent. And of course, so, so many parents, they think they're doing the right thing. In actual fact, they're probably not. Um, But it's only because they don't know or they may not have been educated in that area. And so it's really important for the parents to step up, you know. One parent with his little boy after he heard me speak one night came up with tears and he said, I'll never do again what I did on Sunday with my son. He said, I was walking down the street and there was a homeless man sitting outside David Jones. And he said, I deliberately crossed the road Mm. so that my son didn't have to be near that person. So he said, I will change from today. So it's just sometimes we just don't think or it's thoughtless, you know. Mm. It's hard being a parent, but as parents, it's our responsibility, and particularly grandparents as well. It's our responsibility to to make sure that our children are loved and nurtured and and not too many helicopter parents, okay? There's a lot of those around.
1: (laughs) Helicopters everywhere. It's it's, It's busy in the skies. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Now, talking about uh, you know the, the parenting manual, there's, there is no book for it. You have a book. Yes, I um, do. If there's not a guide for parenting, there is one for philanthropy because you've <laughs> written it. It's called the Power of Giving, Ros. At what point did you decide to? sit down and, and do this?
2: Well, I got sick of people for the last 20 years saying you must write a book. And then
1: a couple of <laughs> years ago, then, so I'll
2: write the bloody book. <laughs> and so I got a great writers on board to help me and um, I did it and I self-published and, yep. and um, it's gone really well. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy that I did it now. There might so, be another so one did, in me.
1: who did you write this for? For you or for no, or for, it, the, for the for the people who annoyed you? telling you you should well, write one.
2: No, no, I don't even give those people a second thought, really. <laughs> I just um, – it's been well received, but there's a lot of stories in there from other people, so it's, it's not all me talking. It's more about other people giving their their insight onto how I may have made a difference in their life because true philanthropy is about giving from the heart and giving of oneself. Yep. Um, you know, if we've got the money, that's wonderful, but, but mine is the heart work, and then you have the wonderful, wealthy philanthropists that give – Hmm. As well as with their heart, as well I might add, there's some yep. wonderful people.
1: Yeah. Where does it all uh, continue for you? Obviously, uh, you, you, you're out from the uh, the family uh, home here, or, or, or you know, living with your, your your children and the extended family. You're on your own. I'm on my own. Financial I've got my freedom.
2: I'm getting my financial independence. There's no stopping You've me still now. Got plenty it's, to do, but yes. uh, but
1: what are you doing now? And well, what do you t- hope, still hope to achieve?
2: do exactly what I'm doing every day. I don't need to change a thing in my life, uh, make a few more dollars. That'll be great, yes. Mm. Um, but um, basically what I'm doing is what I love and I wouldn't change a thing. So, you know, I'm just blessed that I'm here at this age. I've lost so many friends and I wake up every day feeling grateful that I've woken up breathing, <laughs> that I'm breathing. So, um, yeah, I- I'm very simple and there isn't much that I want in life. So... You know, I'm quite happy. I don't need the materialistic things or the houses, and and uh, but that's just me, and that's the way I tick. So I'll just keep on keeping on, Tim, till as long as I fall off my perch.
1: Well, hopefully that's a, <laughs> a lot, lot longer. But, uh, Ros, just <clears throat> finally, because we are just about out of time, through your life's journey and all of your charity and, and, and philanthropy work, you must have met and attracted to you some incredible people. Beautiful people. Which I suppose is is the ultimate reward, David, the ultimate payment. I met like. David Hasselhoff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, so so people of notoriety, it doesn't really
1: sort of. You can't you know, tell me that now when we're when we're wrapping it yeah, up. Yeah, no, no.
2: I I meet beautiful people every day, but the most beautiful people are the people that are suffering and that I reach out to. So it's not so much about the the famous or the celebrities. It really is the people in the community that I'm attracted to, and and they're very special, very special.
1: Good on you. Well, long may your work continue, Roz. Thank you, Tim. I'm sure while you're walking this (laughs) earth, it will. So (laughs) thank thank you you very much. I feel almost bad for taking an hour out out of your special time, but we do appreciate you coming in and telling us your story. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another
0: WA Inspiring Story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888.